from 89.7 WUWM, Milwaukee's NPR, this is Lake Effect. I'm Joy Powers. Today, we'll explore the Victory Garden Initiative in Milwaukee's Harambe neighborhood. We'll learn how one DACA recipient in Wausau is navigating her education and her future. I want my parents to have someone in, my fa- in our family graduate and stuff like that. So I would be a first-generation student graduating from, from a college. We'll learn about the Milwaukee Public Library's Black History Month Challenge. Plus, explore this year's list of James Beard Award semifinalists from Wisconsin, including several chefs who worked at Milwaukee's Odd Duck Restaurant. It's almost become like a training, a creativity training kitchen. And so um, we've had a lot of great chefs who have lived in the area, worked in that kitchen, and have moved on to do other things. All of that is coming up on Lake Effect. But first, here are today's headlines. This is Lake Effect from 89.7 WUWM, Milwaukee's NPR. I'm Joy Powers, and thank you so much for joining us. Celebration is in the air today, as Milwaukee marks the fifth annual African American Environmental Pioneer Awards. These awards shine a light on community members who dedicate their talents to conservation, sustainability, and advocacy. WUWM's Susan Benn spoke with one of this year's honorees. Dr. Sandra E. Jones is a lifelong Milwaukeean. She taught for over three decades in UW-Milwaukee's Department of African and African Diaspora Studies before taking on leadership of the Victory Garden Initiative in the city's Harambe neighborhood. Just after I retired in 2015, maybe a year later, my partner Brenda Coley, executive director of Milwaukee Water Commons, co-executive director, and Ann Bremen, who was the interim EV here, asked me to consider being on the board because VGI had some difficulties in terms of diversity, you know, and I I agreed to do it. So uh, what I first started doing was coming to the farm stand. You know, Victory Garden Initiative has a weekly farm stand, and I came and and so somewhere around that time is when I first got associated with VGI. I was elected to the board, put on the board, um, and um, it, the rest is history. So it's an interesting evolution. Victory Garden Initiative started in somebody's living room on the east side. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and and here we are. Describe this spot in the in the neighborhood. Well. Um, and again, it was one of the reasons that I uh, was asked to, you know, become associated with VGI, because it was um, really not integrated, I'll use that word, uh, into the neighborhood. The neighborhood really saw it as a space for white people. And so that was one of the things that I wanted to address when I started working with the, with the group. Since then, things have changed. We had our first uh, African-American woman, Michelle Dobbs, who was executive director before I came on. And she did a a great deal in terms of really making this place of the neighborhood, not necessarily only serving it, but of the neighborhood. And um, we've continued that process. So um, we had at the end of last year what we called a season wrap-up, this room here. It was full with people, and there was food and music, and, and the diversity was just beautiful. <laughs> you know, there were people, the neighbors from, came over and, and uh, 
enjoyed fellowship and food and you know that kind of thing um, and that's what we that's what our aim is you know to make this of the neighborhood and not simply serving it although we do plenty of that too your life started in Milwaukee. You've had a full, rich career in, in teaching at UWM. Uh, actually, I'm a high school dropout. <laughs> I went to North Division. I grew up in Milwaukee, born and raised. Went to North Division, dropped out in the, at 17. 17 years later, I started at university, at UWM. 17 years after that, I walked across the stage with a PhD. My first and only teaching position has been at UWM. So. I am Milwaukee born and bred. <laughs> and talk about that teaching and, and you know, why, why you gravitated to it. My field is literature. I teach African-American literature, women's literature, but I also teach history and sociology. And even in, when I teach literature, I always incorporate it or embed it in the history out of which it grew. I've been teaching a long time, and I love it. I love being in the classroom. The most exciting thing is when you meet somebody out in the world who was in one of your classes. <laughs> we have here at Victory Garden the Great Milwaukee Blitz annually. And when I first came on, I was working on the Blitz, called up Blue Ribbon Organic Soil. That's where we get our soil for the Blitz. And I'm talking on the phone to the young man, and he says, oh, by the way, I was in one of your classes. <laughs> Made me feel great. But, you know, teaching has is, is, is really been an important part of my life because it, it gives me the opportunity to keep the history alive, you know, keep the traditions that is, is so important in, in African-American culture to keep it alive. So many students in my classes have never heard of W.E.B. Du Bois, Zora Neale Hurston, and folks like that. And you know, and that, that's, that's important history. It's one of the reasons that I wrote my book, Voices of Milwaukee Bronzeville, to keep that history alive. You know, I interviewed eight people who were born in Milwaukee and had the whole of the Bronzeville experience. And when they go, that's gone, you know? So getting that, those stories is, is really important. In fact, two of the people who I interviewed have left us. That's my teaching story. <laughs> how did you wrestle with the environmental issues? You know, how, how has that factored into your life and now as you're at this chapter of contributing to the future of this organization? Well, you know, I, I come from a, a family of, of farmers. My family comes from Mississippi, Valzoni, Mississippi. And uh, my parents were sharecroppers. You know, growing up, we always had a garden. My father was a big farmer, uh, you know, so... In that sense, I've always been connected to the land. But being associated with VGI has really opened my eyes to issues, the issue of food insecurity. VGI is situated in the heart of the Harambe community, the heart of the black community. And I don't know if people know this, but there are no major grocery stores in, in the boundaries of Harambe. Um, about 11,000 people live in this neighborhood. It's one of the poorest neighborhoods in the city. Many don't own cars. So they don't have access to healthy, nutritious food. You know, they depend on corner stores and gas stations and dollar stores and things like that. And they don't sell fresh 
fruit, fruit and vegetables there. So in my opinion, VGI is an important resource under those circumstances. Everything we grow here is organic, and more importantly, everything we grow here is free in one way or the other, through our distribution system, through the uh, urban farm, acre and a half urban farm, where people, it's open 24 seven, people can come and pick what they want. We have the weekly farm stand during the growing season, and we wanna make these things available because it does address such an important issue. The closest thing we have to major grocery stores on the boundaries, Walmart and Pete's Market on North Avenue. And like I say, many people don't have cars, so even that is inaccessible. You know, you could be sitting around drinking coffee and writing a book and maybe traveling. Would you call this a labor of love or a labor that needs doing? It is a labor of love, and up to now, I've been doing it pro bono. <laughs> you know, because like I say, BGI was having some difficulties. One was financial. I had the time. I had the energy. I feel the need. So that's why I got involved. That's why I remain involved. I could be doing all those things, but I only agreed to do this job for a year. And at the end of the year, <laughs> I don't want to go, so I'm going to stick around a while. I believe the beginning of the Victory Garden movement was, it was spearheaded by Eleanor Roosevelt, I think, mm. wasn't it? At a time when food around the country likely was at a premium, you know, mm -hmm. things were tough. Does the name of the organization itself resonate with you, or does it feel... I've heard people say that it is a bit outdated. <laughs> you know, the Blitz, you know, it's, all, it's, it's related to war and, and military, and, you know, some folks want to change it. But I guess I'm, I have to look past that. You know, it, is it a problem? I don't think so. It has a little spark to it. <laughs> well, you're, I, I'm guessing, you know... Um, use your energy and your advocacy in areas that's, that are really necessary, which I think what you've said is, is being part of this neighborhood. Right, right. And, you know, we're sitting in this, what we call our farmhouse, and this is our community room. So we not only grow food, but we, we have classes here. We have a series of classes we call Move Grass classes, where we teach beginning gardening, container gardening, uh, a couple weeks ago, we had a wonderful event uh, put on by uh, Camille Mays, a sound bath. So this room was full of people, and she was playing her crystal bowls, and you know it was a healing exercise. We're going to do it again soon, by the way. The backyard, which is a beautiful space, has a wonderful cherry tree sitting right in the middle of it, best cherries in the world. Uh, we want to turn that into a, um, a kitchen garden, a healing garden, and have events back there. We've, we've had some in the past, but we really want to upgrade it and, and make it a nice, usable space. And, and just to continue about this room, we also have youth education classes in the summer because we want to not only feed people, but teach people how to feed themselves. That's an important part of Victory Garden's mission. The idea of developing a healing space, a garden space. Is there discussion of using it as a tool to drive down violence and drive up good stuff? The way I would put it is, you know, there's a lot of hurt in this community. And 
the community needs a lot of healing. So, you know, so rather than anti-violence and all of that, we want to help people to heal and to grow. We want to be a, a place where people can, even the garden, you know, across the street, people can go and breathe cleaner air. So that's our focus, making it a place where people can come and get away from all the violence. You know, we've had our ups and downs, but we have a bigger purpose to serve in helping people to heal from the, just the struggles of everyday life. And part of that is, is, is the food we grow and giving people nutritious, healthy food to eat. So as you consider this honor, what's the significance of celebrating African-American environmental pioneers mm -hmm. and rising stars? Well, for so long they've been ignored. And, and I must say, I am totally surprised and honored <laughs> to be in this number. But, you know, for so long, people just put their heads down and do their work in this community and don't often get recognized. And so the importance to me is, is really highlighting the hard work and commitment that people are doing across the city of Milwaukee. Because we don't get it that often. For people listening to this story, mm -hmm. what would you like people to walk away from learning about BGI, learning about your passion for teaching and why <laughs> what's happening here is happening? What do you want to leave people with? I guess I want to leave people with the idea that something can be done. We're resilient people. <laughs> and things change when we put our minds and bodies to work at changing them. You know, I could tell you many stories about people I meet in the course of this work. You know, our neighbor Molly on this side of us and Melvin across the street. They just put their heads down and do their work. When we put our minds to it, we can get things done. So let's put our minds to it. <laughs> and bodies. Dr. Sandra E. Jones is executive director of the Victory Garden Initiative. She's one of nine honorees of this year's African American Environmental Pioneer Awards, being celebrated today. Jones continues to teach African American literature at UW-Milwaukee as an adjunct professor. group of bipartisan bills in Wisconsin aimed to help DACA recipients pursue higher education and enter the workforce. DACA recipients came to the U.S. as children and through the federal program, they're protected from deportation and can work legally. But there are barriers to their schooling and work in Wisconsin, from having to pay out-of-state tuition to not being eligible for certain professional licenses. Republican Representative John Macko co-sponsored the package of bills. He says removing those barriers will relieve the state's workforce shortage. DACA recipients are here. What is the state of Wisconsin going to do about it? It's time to get out of their way and let, the, and let them get educated and contribute to their workforce. One of the bills would allow DACA recipients to apply for licenses to work jobs like nursing, engineering, and teaching. WUWM's Lena Tran spoke with Elizabeth Roman, a DACA recipient pursuing a nursing degree at North Central Technical College in Wausau. So how are you liking nursing school? It's a lot of work, but I love it. I've always, I've always wanted to be in a field 
where I could just help impact somebody's life positively. I am currently a certified nursing assistant and I just, I, I love what I do and I just wanted to enhance my career and learn more. In my first year, my first semester, I loved it. I got to work with like my geriatric patients and it, it was great. And now I'm, I'm in my second semester and I get to work in a hospital and just, I just keep loving and learning more about nursing. And I just, I just know that this was the right path for me to take. You are a DACA recipient. When did you learn that you couldn't get your professional nursing license in Wisconsin? I I didn't know when I got into nursing school. Like a couple months ago, Tony called me. He told me that that if I knew that that DACA recipients couldn't hold a nursing license in Wisconsin, and I was so confused. I was like, "What are you talking about? Like, I got into school. Like, I'm doing it. Like, so basically, what I can do is I can graduate from the tech, but as a DACA recipient, I'm not allowed to hold a license, a nursing license in Wisconsin. And so that was shocking to me because I didn't know that. You know, my whole plan was to graduate from the tech here, uh, hopefully applying to a university in Wisconsin and getting my bachelor's right away, but. Uh, now, you know, that plan is kind of like up in the air because now I don't know what's going to happen, whether they're going to pass this or whether I have to look other places. Yeah. What are you thinking about that? You're looking at other states nearby or? The plan is going to be to get my associates and maybe move, move to a compact state that allows me to have a license there and then kind of just do the traveling path. I'm looking to see which state's are still nearby where I can still be close to my family, but I'm hoping and I'm praying that I can stay here in Wisconsin and, you know, work and contribute, you know, to my, to the society here and start my own family. But first I got to get through school. So (laughs) (laughs) yeah, that's a lot to have on your shoulders. I'm sorry that you're having to navigate this. You mentioned your family can you tell me more about your family? Are they all in Wisconsin and Wausau? So I have basically all my family members here living in Wisconsin, in Wausau specifically. I do have uh, two brothers that live in Chicago, but other than that, everybody else lives here in Wausau, and we're a really united family, so it's, it's hard for me because I've, I've, I always grew up near my family, and it's sending that, that I may not have that possibility to continue to pursue my dream here. Yeah. Can you tell me a bit more about your family's journey to Wausau? It definitely was a journey coming to Wausau and getting comfortable and finding a job where, you know, we would make enough money to maintain a living here. Because I I do come from a big family. So I come from a family of six brothers and three sisters. I'm the fourth. But in the beginning, it was hard. My parents have had to figure out ways to help me and my family move forward. And for me too, because I, you know, I was in high school and I've always wanted to help my parents. And I think part of also why I'm doing nursing is because I do want to help my parents and because I want my parents to have um, someone in my fa- in our family graduate and stuff like that. So I would be a first generation student graduating from, from a college. So being in high school and working in a restaurant because I didn't have the opportunity to, you know, work as a CNA because I, I didn't have DACA back then. When I did get DACA, I started, it opened up so many doors. I started to, you know, I got back into school, got my license. I was able to work in offices. It has definitely impacted my life positively in a lot of ways. And I just hope that it continues to do that for me. Do you have any other friends in this situation? I, I do have a few other friends that are actually in the at the tech 
with me who are also in the same situation. They also didn't know about that. I have a friend who he's not into nursing, but he wants to be a dental hygienist. And I think dental hygienists also aren't allowed to hold a license in Wisconsin. And he is also a DACA recipient. He was just talking to me about it a couple of days ago because we caught up with each other and I was like, hey, how's school? How are you doing? And he's like, oh, I'm not doing it anymore because what for? Like, I, I'm not going to be able to hold the license in Wisconsin. So it's not even worth it. And all that money for what? And that's another thing. That's another thing with us DACA recipients is we don't get financial aid. We have to work and pay for school on top of trying to stay on top of school. So it's a lot. And just hearing that, you know, it was like, it, it broke my heart because I was like, you know, he's such a great guy and he's really smart and he's he's he has so much passion for what he does and so I was like you know there's something's gonna happen like don't give up on your dreams like keep keep pursuing it keep going like we're gonna find a way to get through this I'm sorry that you're dealing with this and then like I'm glad you're not alone and that you have people dealing with it too but it's really terrible it's a hard situation you know having to work Having to get through school itself, it's 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 a lot of work. It's a lot of work. It takes a lot from you. And then not, you know, to just kind of find out that, oh, well, once you get done with school, now you're going to have to go to another place and get your license there. And it's not really just about going to another state and getting, you know, getting your license in school. It's really going to another state and moving your whole life there, like starting over, finding a place, friends, family isn't going to be there, like your support system's not going to be there. So it's hard and it's scary to think that, you know, that I'm going to have to make that move and, and, and I just hope I don't have to. Everything that you've been saying is all of this is adding up to being so much to like carry all the time, like emotionally, mentally, what do you do to relax? <laughs> you know, Right now with, with school, this is my second semester, there's so much to do. Like my weekends, I I try to just stay at home and hang out with my parents, hang out with my sister, play with my dogs, you know, on my free time, read more about things, get educated, you know, and, you know, also just kind of distracting my mind from, from all this and just going to the gym and working out and stuff like that. But yeah. Right now, it, it's kind of, it's all stressful because I'm kind of up in the air with things like what's going to happen. Yeah. Do you have a class that you're excited about this semester? Yeah, actually, I, um, this semester, I get to work in the OB. Yeah, so I get to work with babies and I'm really excited because I actually get to start that in two days at the hospital here in town. And so that's, I'm, I'm really excited. I've always wanted to work with babies and just just learning everything that a mom goes through and everything that you do for the mom and for the baby and just for the families, the family in general has been something that I've, I've always been interested in curious. And so I'm going to get the opportunity to do that. And I'm really excited. Thank you so much, Elizabeth, for sharing your patients, current and future are super lucky to have you. And yeah, I appreciate your taking the time to share what all this looks like for you. Thank you. Thank you for giving me the opportunity to speak about this. I want to advocate for other, you know, other DACA recipients who are on the same boat as me. And I appreciate you, you giving me the opportunity to talk to you and share more about me. That was WUWM's Lena Tran speaking with Elizabeth Roman, a DACA recipient and nursing student in Wausau. The bills are moving to the Senate, and the current legislative session ends this week. And did you know you can listen to Lake Effect as a podcast? Search for Lake Effect wherever you get your podcasts to download and listen on demand. 
You can also follow WUWM on Instagram, where you'll find videos and pictures from news stories and Lake Effect interviews. Later in the show, we'll head to the Karen Supermarket on Milwaukee's south side and learn what it means for Myanmar refugees living in the city. But first, we'll see how the Milwaukee Public Library is celebrating Black History Month with reading recommendations and special programs. That's coming up next on Lake Effect on 89.7 WUWM, Milwaukee's NPR. You're listening to Lake Effect on 89.7 WUWM. I'm Joy Powers. Whether it's by watching a film, reading a book, or going to an event, there are many ways to celebrate Black history and uplift Black voices. The Milwaukee Public Library System is a place that can help you do all of that and much more. For this month's Books and Beyond, Lake Effect's Audrey Nowakowski speaks with Joy Zanders, a librarian at Milwaukee Public Library's Martin Luther King Branch, to learn more about MPL's Black History Month Challenge and get a few reading recommendations. Joy Zanders, welcome to Lake Effect. Thanks for being here today. Thank you. Happy Black History Month. Happy Black History Month. And one of the ways we can celebrate Black History Month is by using our local library. And of course, there's using the library to educate ourselves on Black history, but there's also a lot of great activities and events happening this month. So first, let's talk about the Black History Month challenge that MPL has put together. Can you share what this challenge is about and how people can participate? Yes, we're challenging everyone, children, babies, adults, old folks, everybody, daycares, colleges, every single body to complete three items, just three items. You can read a book about black history. You can read a book by a black author or illustrator. You can watch a movie or a documentary on black history or change makers or unsung heroes. You can listen to audiobooks. That's my favorite. And you can use our databases. You can attend a program at Milwaukee Public Library. All those items count for the challenge. You write down your three activities, turn it into your Milwaukee Public Library, and you'll be entered into a drawing for gift certificates. We have gift certificates to Bronzeville Collective, Rooted, Classic, and of course you'll get your NPL swag. You mentioned audiobook is your favorite way to digest. Um, Are you listening to any favorites right now or anything for Black History yourself? I will tell you that I am such a big fan of S.A. Cosby. Um, I just finished All the Sinners Bleed. If you're into mysteries, you definitely want to check S.A. Cosby out. (laughs) Awesome. Good to know. Now, there's also a Black History Month reading challenge for all ages, but especially for kids and The library has even put together a list of recommendations, right? Yes, you can go to the website or stop into your local library. There are several books that you can check out and read. I'll tell you one of my favorites is There Was a Party for Langston by Jason Reynolds, illustrated by Jerome and Jared Pumphney. They do an excellent job (laughs) displaying this party going on for Langston. I love it. So you definitely should check that out. 
Um, one of the activities that you mentioned in this challenge is attending a Black History Month program, and there's lots of them at different branches. So let's go over some of these options. I would love to highlight the We Rise Milwaukee Black Entrepreneurs in Action that's happening February 20th in the beautiful business commons on the second floor of the Central Library. They're giving away free headshots and there will be a panel discussion. Definitely something you don't want to miss. And especially with the headshots and some other resources, that's a really awesome thing to have included in a program. Um, and also, just in case people can't make something this month, there are a couple talks that are in early March as well, including a talk by John Goethe, a local historian all about Black Milwaukee as well. Although, just in case people can't fit in a program into their schedule or perhaps they need a local branch option if they can't travel around, there are some other resources available in their libraries and online, right? Yes, online. You can go to Hoopla. You can check out Libby. Those are online databases. You just use your library car. You can check out books. You can check out movies. I love to listen to audiobooks all the time because I'm constantly on the go, so I totally get it. But there's a wonderful selection of items on Hoopla and Libby. And um, they're available through the Wisconsin Digital Library. Canopy is another great resource. They have a lot of movies you can watch for free. Uh, ABC Philo, you can check that out as well. If you have any problems, you always can come and check out your local librarian. <laughs> yes, have the direct help and resources there for you in front of you. Yes. So, Joy, we have mentioned a few books here, for either from the reading recommendation or what you're listening to on audiobook, but do you have any other titles you'd like to highlight, either for adults or kids? I'll, I'll also mention the new Brownies book. Uh, Charlie Palmer was just here this past weekend. We had a lovely conversation um, with him, and they put together the new Brownies book, which is a revamp of the original publication by W.E.B. Du Bois back in the 1920s, but it was a publication for families and it had games and stories and just it's beautiful, beautiful artwork. I definitely recommend you check that book out. All right. Well, Joy, thank you so much for coming in and sharing more about what people can do with the library to celebrate Black History Month. Anytime. Thank you for having me. Joy Sanders is a librarian at Milwaukee Public Library's Martin Luther King Branch. She joined Lake Effect's Audrey Nowakowski, and you can find out more about MPL's Black History Month Challenge at wuwm.com. And we want to hear from you as we gear up to cover local elections and the presidential election in November. You can have a say in our 2024 election coverage by filling out our election survey. You can find a link at wuwm.com. What you tell us will help inform the stories you hear on Lake Effect and WUWM. Coming up, we'll learn about the many chefs and restaurants in Wisconsin that made it on this year's list of James Beard Awards semifinalists. That's next on Lake Effect on 89.7 WUWM, Milwaukee's NPR. This is Lake Effect on 89.7 WUWM. I'm Joy Powers.
Every year, the James Beard Awards recognize chefs and restaurants around the country. This year's list of semifinalists include a number of Wisconsin chefs and restaurants, including many here in Milwaukee. Lori Frederick is the dining editor for On Milwaukee, and she joins me now to talk about the Wisconsinites on this year's list of semifinalists. Lori, thank you so much for being here on Lake Effect. My pleasure. So there are a lot of different chefs and restaurateurs who have been nominated from the state of Wisconsin. I'd like to start here in Milwaukee and actually just about half a block from where we are right now. Uh, Chef Gregory Leone, I believe, of Amalinda. Correct. Yeah, so Gregory has had a a really nice run with the James Beard Awards. Um, He was nominated for the Best Chef Midwest Award in both 2022 and 2023. And this year, he's among the semifinalists for Outstanding Chef. And this is a national award. So Best Chef Midwest, you know, is confined to the Midwest. This category encompasses chefs from all states. (laughs) So it's going to be a little bit more challenging, you know, for him to bring this one home. But I think it it would be fun. I think it would be the first time that a chef brought home this honor for Wisconsin. So he does Spanish and Portuguese fare um, with a little bit of a Southern twist. It's kind of just his style. So if you you go there, you'll get any number of dishes, you know, from from Portugal, um, primarily and, and Spain. But they're always prepared, I think, with a little bit of South. Well, kind of on the note of uh, collegiality among chefs, Mm -hmm. there are a couple restaurants, one that is not in Milwaukee, one that is, that do have kind of a a, a close relationship, or at least some of the, the, one of the chefs worked for a long time, I know, at Odd Duck. So we have Odd Duck here in Mm -hmm. Milwaukee that is nominated. We also have Mejum that Mm -hmm. is nominated. Correct, correct. So, So let's start with Odd Duck because they've been around for the better part of a decade, if not already a decade. And the restaurant was started by Ross Bachhuber and his partner, Melissa Buchholz. The restaurant was the product of the space. So they looked around and looked around. They had some concepts floating around in their head for what they wanted to do. And they ended up in this really interesting space that was like an ego-friendly retail shop. And the way that it was configured, they had a nice big space for a bar and a dining room but a very small space for the kitchen. So they decided, as a result, that they would do small plates. And that was probably a good idea for the space. But the way they decided to do this, which was changing the menu of small plates every single day, (laughs) was grew to be a challenge and their menu got bigger. They actually did, they started with a small plate menu that had a few entrees, but that quickly went by the wayside because people really did like the idea of shareable plates. Ross was also always the chef and owner, but he really shared that space with other people that he hired. So if you were in the kitchen, you know, as a sous chef or a, I, don't, I don't even think they stick to the regular titles there. But if you worked in that kitchen, you more or less were a contributor to that menu. So everybody would come up with ideas. They would kind of present them to one another. You know, they got one day to figure them out, and then they went out for service. And one of the things I've always admired is that their approach is so experimental. You know, they're not working on these recipes for months before they present them to the public. Sometimes it's really just like this one-off idea that they threw together and knew they could replicate. And they're never very far off the mark. Like, I've never had something there that is a fail, right? 
it's always just, wow, I respect these guys for just for going there. But there's been so many chefs. It's, it's almost become like a training, a creativity training kitchen. I mean, the place is fueled by people who are creative and people who want to express themselves, people who are into food from around the world. And so um, we've had a lot of great chefs who have lived in the area, worked in that kitchen, and have moved on to do other things, um, including one of the folks from Dan Dan, who's also on the list. Um, And Bryce Stevenson is one of the people. He got his start, or at least worked with the Odd Duck folks for a very long time. He's a Native American chef who decided that one of his goals was to reconnect with his family, his history, his culture through food. And so... He has this restaurant, Mijim, and it is way up at the tip top <laughs> of Wisconsin in La Pointe, Wisconsin, which is just on a little bitty island. And it's actually, it's on land that I believe is sacred to the Ojibwe. He just opened this restaurant last year, so to be acknowledged by James Beard is pretty significant. Well, and a national semifinalist. And a national, yes, because he has uh, made the long list for emerging chef. Which, which I think is an appropriate category for someone who is new. Yeah. Um, Esther Rev is like a nostalgic look at their past in fine dining. Um, so it's a space where you can do coursed out, multi-course chef dinners that are served by the chefs. Um, they're created, they're very like Midwestern inspired, but they, they bring forward all the kind of global flavors that the two chefs have worked with, as well as, you know, their... Jacobs, for a long time, was very obsessed with kind of gadgets, and therefore got into kind of the molecular gastronomy arena. So you'll have a lot of the little fancy touches in the dishes there. Um, but it's this—it's a really, really phenomenal place. It's—it's it's very well priced, you know, for what you get, which is a an intimate, multi-course experience with pairings or without. And they have been nominated now for the sixth time in the semifinals. <laughs> so we were wow. going to, I laughed because I, I texted them just to congratulate them in the morning of the awards. And I said, so six times the charm, right? Like, <laughs> Fingers crossed. Yes. And, and because it is culturally, like you need to be nominated multiple times before you get a James Beard award. I'm sure there are exceptions, but that seems to be, and six times is, you know, <laughs> it's gotta be, it's, it's gotta be, gotta get you there. So we have so we have the folks from Esterov, and then um, Kyle Knall of Birch is also up for semifinals for Best Chef Midwest, and he's an interesting pick because he just moved to Milwaukee a couple of years ago um, to take the post at Birch. Um, he is now sole owner of that restaurant, but he you know and he came via East Coast, New Orleans. I mean, he worked at places like Gramercy Tavern and Maysville in New York, where he got glowing, glowing reviews from the, the critic there. And moved to, moved to Milwaukee, really, because he and his, his wife is from the area, and they really would just wanted a great place to you know, raise a family. We have a reputation for that <laughs> here in the Midwest. But it also happens to be a great place to be a, you know, to be a chef. Now, you know, I mean, it's no longer a flyover zone. We have plenty of evidence of that. And from the get-go, um, he's just really made waves in a good way um, with his food. Last year, he was up for Outstanding Chef, which is a national award. And this year, he's up for Best Chef Midwest. So who knows? He's going to give see. people a run for their money. <laughs> so aside from Milwaukee, a lot of the attention on this list 
is in Madison. Uh, there are a number of spots in Madison that have made mm-hmm. the semifinals. Tell us a bit about them. Yeah. So we'll start with Mint Mark, which is a fairly, um, it's, it's a few years old, but definitely, um, what would I say about it? I mean, kind of falls on, on the list of what a modern restaurant is. I mean, and you go there and you just, it's, it's a place where you're going to have an exceptional experience, an exceptional food, exceptional drink, but it's kind of in that mid-tier sort of category, a big splash when they opened a couple of years ago, and um, you could not get in, <laughs> you know, to eat there. Then we have places like, I will admit, I don't know a ton about Pasture and Plenty. I have not been there, but they are a semifinalist for outstanding hospitality. That seems to be a strong suit, honestly, for restaurants in Madison. Um, there is a culture of hospitality there that I, I guess I kind of note no matter where you go. Maybe it's the the nature of the city itself, you know, people coming there from kind of all over the U.S. and the world, being a university town, I don't know. But they're, they're up for Outstanding Hospitality, also a national award. Siovata Idari is the owner of Coco Va Chocolatiers in Madison. She is up for Outstanding Pastry Chef, which is something I don't think I've seen a chocolatier in this category before, but she's definitely deserving. I mean, she makes beautiful confections as well as, you know, different pastries and things in her shop. And she has connections to Milwaukee. She started her career as a lawyer um, and spent a bunch of time here and actually started her chocolate business here, kind of gifting colleagues <laughs> with sweets. She told Testing me that the her, water. yeah, she told me that, that making chocolate was really her her stress reliever. You know, being a lawyer is not without without <laughs> tension and that she got through most of her early career, and then decided that that's really what she, you know where she wanted to head, and she's she's made waves. She's gotten international awards, and so very deserving there. And the last one is in Bay City, Wisconsin, um, and this is Chef Chef Shack Bay City. <laughs> um, this is a woman-owned operation that has a history of being in the James Beard Award nominations category. Early on, they were nominated for awards, and then they seem to have taken a break. <laughs> um, but they're they're back on this list, and, and it's actually really good to see because, you know, I wonder how many people, if you ask them where Bay City is, if they would be able to tell you. Yeah. Not a big place. <laughs> <laughs> so a lot of people from Wisconsin being nominated, being recognized, certainly. I'm looking forward to seeing uh, who ends up with these awards. Lori... Thank you so much for joining us here on Lake Effect. Thank you. Lori Frederick is the dining editor for On Milwaukee. At WUWM.com, you can find our previous conversations about dining in the city. Milwaukee has become home to a growing community of refugees from Myanmar, formerly known as Burma. Armed conflicts have been ravaging the nation for more than seven decades, often dividing people along ethnic lines. Milwaukee is thought to have the United States' largest community of Rohingya, a Muslim minority group from Myanmar that's faced persecution. Other groups like Burmese and Karen have faced similar persecution during this time of unrest. That was the case for Two Paws family, which fled to a Thai refugee camp before making their way to the U.S. Pa is the owner of Karen Supermarket on Milwaukee's south side, 
a grocery store and meeting place for people in the community. I headed over to the supermarket to learn more about it. To, thank you so much for chatting mm -hmm. with me. Uh, so you said you really just started over here about two, three months ago. Yeah, I started on around March 7th, I believe, yeah, of this year. But you've lived in Milwaukee for a while now. Uh-huh, yeah, I have lived in Milwaukee since uh, 2018. Mm -hmm. Where did you move from? Originally, like uh, I was born in Thailand refugee camp, and then I grew up there. Uh, we moved to uh, American back in 2010. The first states I was living in was Dallas, Texas, and after like a few years, we moved to Iowa, and then during the years of 2018, I moved here. What brought you to Milwaukee specifically? Um, not really sure. Just I think just um, families, yeah. It seems like there is a, a growing community here in Milwaukee. Right. Uh, has that been helpful compared to other states? You said you lived in Iowa, you, you lived uh, in... Yeah, it's pretty helpful, you know, open up a grocery store, have your own community supporting you. It's a, like a, a plus. Uh, and they like also want to make sure that they have what they need, what they're looking for. But yeah, I have seen a lot lately, we have a lot of Rohingya community, current community coming in, yeah. So what is, uh, for people who won't know, what is the difference between the Korean community, the, the Rohingya community, the Burmese community? Oh, okay, yeah. So, like, we have, like, I'm not really sure myself. Like, <laughs> sure. uh, I don't know the history, but we have, like, all kind of ethnic group who live in a refugee camp. So, like, my parents, uh, they originally from Burma, but due to the civil war between Burma and Korean, uh, then uh, they flee to Thailand back in, I think, 19... 95 or 1994 and I was both there in 1998 in the refugee camp so a lot of like ethnic group moved to the refugee camps due to the war they just want a little bit of freedom and stuff like that so this is a very diverse group of people right. I think uh -huh. we tend to uh, lump everyone into right. one yeah. kind of mm -hmm. group but there are so many different folks yes it is yeah we have all but most of us like understand the Burmese language so we can kind of communicate with that well that's good news right <laughs> uh, when you're trying to cater to what is a very diverse group of people how do you do that with a grocery store? Because I'm sure everybody has slightly different preferences for what they want to eat, what they right. want to eat. Yeah, so um, we just kind of like get feedback from customer. We ask like, you know, whatever, what kind of things they're looking for. Sometimes like they will come in, show me a picture, and then I'll just keep a photo of it, ask, you know, ask uh, where I could get those. And then sometimes just bring in little by little and then, yeah. Now, I notice you sell both clothing here and mm -hmm. food. Uh, as I'm looking at the clothing, what am I looking at? Is, is so, this? Yeah, these are, uh, that's the current flag over there. These are men traditions shirts. And those are women traditional um, dress, clothing, shirts. But we usually, like, we don't really wear, wear it day to day uh, in these generations. But for, like, my parents and other, the older generation, they do kind of wear this every day. But, like, for us, we wear, we wear them, like, during the special day, like, uh, revolutionary days on, like, Sunday for going to church and stuff like that. Sure. Mm -hmm. So as I'm looking around the store, you have so many things from uh, different countries, different right. places. Mm -hmm. What are some of the items that you find people asking for most, where they're like, I just can't find this? 
Right, yeah, we have a lot of products that people would ask for, especially from Thailand. Uh, it's hard to get, you know, like you, it's just so hard to find those stuff. Sometimes they'll just ask for like, because I think they just haven't had them for a long time. Sometimes veggies, sometimes will come to fruits that they haven't been eating for a long time. So they will kind of like ask for those, yeah. Uh, I've noticed, uh, so I, I live not far from here, so I've mm -hmm. come a few times, I think before you owned it as well. Right. Um, and I've noticed that recently it seems mm -hmm. like you've started doing more hot food. Right, yeah, so it's more of like uh, dates, daily to dates. We make them like daily. Those are like more of Burmese, Koreans, like everyday uh, like dessert things. So we have like some noodles, some um, sticky rice. Yeah, we just make kind of just a little bit of a menu. It, it seems like a nice gathering place for people. Have you found more people are coming to the store and, and staying and sitting down and, you know, having a space? Yeah, so like it's more kind of, it's a grocery store, but it's also like family, friends friendly. Like some type of people just come in, ask to, you know, um, have a seat waiting for whoever gonna pick them up. Sometimes they just come and have a chat. Yeah, very friendly family store, I guess. <laughs> What do you see as you look around uh, the growing Burmese, Karen, Rohingya community? Mm -hmm. What do you see as, as your space inside of that community? I have a lot of Karen community right now coming in, but I don't see a lot of like uh, Burmese, Chains, Karenni, or Rohingya yet. So maybe they'll come in more often. <laughs> Is there anything that you would say to people who uh, are, are interested in checking out the space, interested in checking out the grocery store, uh, but may not be as familiar with the cuisine? Or oh yeah, mm -hmm. I have a lot of like for like people from American and um, whoever, like they will come and then I'll kind of like show them around if they want. And sometimes they're looking for a specific product. They'll just show me a picture and they will walk with. I will walk them through. So yeah. Uh, I think communication is a big key if you want to like kind of get into like more with the diversity. So yeah, I think communications, being friendly, yeah. All right. Well, uh, thank you so much for chatting with me. Sure. Thank you. Tupaw is the owner of Karen Supermarket at National and 27th on Milwaukee's South Side. We spoke with her last year. And that wraps up today's show. Thank you so much for being here with us. I'm Joy Powers. If you missed any of today's conversations, or if you'd like to take Lake Effect on the go, you can download our podcast. Search for Lake Effect wherever you get your podcasts to listen to all of our shows on demand. Tomorrow on Lake Effect, we'll learn about a wide-ranging political newsletter called Life Under Construction. Plus, we'll have the latest episode of our music series live at Lake Effect, featuring country music artist Lola Kirk. That's all tomorrow at noon, right here on Lake Effect, on listener-supported 89.7 WUWM, Milwaukee's NPR.